0: Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, this podcast is going to be the presentation I made at the Alta Club. I'm going to do it in the form of an audio, but I'm also going to put the slides that I used for this and put it in my YouTube video, and I will give you a link to that YouTube video in the show notes for the podcast. But before we get on to that, let me thank my sponsor, Sailrite. Since 1969, Sailrite has been equipping you with everything you need to sew for your boat, from bimini's and boat covers to upholstery work and even sewing your own sails. Sailrite is your one-stop shop for fabric, sail and canvas kits, tools, Hardware and sewing supplies. SailRite is also the maker of the patented Ultrafeed sewing machine, a portable, heavy duty machine that can handle all the sewing jobs for your boat and more. A passionate crew of DIYers, SailRite produces high quality, free how to videos to empower their customers to turn their sewing dreams into a reality. I, you know, I've been a member of the ALTA Club since the 1990s. It's been great being a member here. There's so many interesting people here, and there's so many stories to be told by members of the ALT Club, and I'm looking forward to hearing more of them. Well, tonight we're going to talk about two things. First of all, we're going to talk about podcasting and my particular podcast, which is called Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond. And then we're going to talk about one specific summer, because I had to choose one, uh, and that's the summer of 2013. So there was a time back in the day when you had to use your imagination to, to, to decipher and, and paint pictures in your mind. And that was what I call the first golden age of radio. Well, the only golden age of radio as far as I'm concerned. And that was back in the 1920s and 30s and early 40s before we had the cathode ray tube come into our living rooms and take away our attention and eliminate our imagination. Once a cathode ray tube came in, everything was in black and white or color, and you threw away your imagination, and, and I've always been a fan of audio. Well, right now, we are living through the second golden age of audio, and that's what I call podcasting. And podcasting has been around since 2004, but it really didn't get going until iTunes was invented by Apple And they allowed anybody that wanted to create a podcast to upload their podcast RSS feed into the iTunes directory and allow anybody that wanted to listen to it to to choose or not to choose to listen to what you created. So anybody can create a podcast. It's not limited to me or you or some big corporation like we had KSL come in here and talk about one of their episodes. But anybody that wants to create a podcast can create a podcast. And it doesn't really require much of an investment. My daughter, Michelle, who's here with us tonight, she created a podcast when she was going to the School of Occupational Therapy. And she was the first... Uh, student occupational therapist to create a podcast. And what she did with this is she, it allowed her to interview people in her field that she would not normally have even been able to talk to. And I think it led directly to her first job. And once she got her first job, they told her to shut down her podcast. And so she's thinking of starting another one right now. So anybody that has a story to tell and is willing to talk by themselves into a microphone for Hours on end can create a podcast. So I created in uh, in night in 2004. I think this is probably my third or fourth podcast. But I started. I decided I wanted to talk about my passions, and my passions are sailing. And I decided I wanted to talk about my experiences and what I had done over the years sailing in the Mediterranean. So. So I set up the podcast, Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond. It was originally just Sailing in the Mediterranean, but I ran out of subjects, so I had to extend it beyond the Mediterranean. And my objectives were, first of all, I wanted to share my sailing stories. And once I ran out of those, I had to start expanding out. And then, so from that, it led to me interviewing interesting people and let me meet interesting people. It created a community... And my wife and I went, sa- went, to, uh, went sailing this summer, but we stopped over in Amsterdam, and one of my listeners and I went out to dinner that night. We went out to dinners. And it motivates future sailors. So that was the objective of me creating this podcast. I'm on episode 197. And every now and then, you get when you, if you create a podcast and you're out there long enough, you actually generate what you might call as superfans and these are people that actually write a review of your podcast. And you know, it's like any dog needs to be petted once in a while. And that's that's what we get. That's what we get as podcasters because we're not doing it for the money. Very few podcasters can make money at doing podcasting. We're doing something else. I mean, my I'm a registered investment advisor, but this is what I do and I put out a podcast. I try to put out one new one a week. So every now and then you'd get people that actually write reviews of your podcast. And as a general rule, I have some pretty good fans out there. I started uh, podcasting in 2012. Uh, Since then, I've had about 700, well, almost 800,000 downloads since, since I started podcasting. And if you assume that I spend about an hour on each podcast, if you actually assume people actually listen to the full podcast... That's an amazing amount of hours that I have somebody's attention for. And I threw this up here because um, I, I host my MP3 files at a company called Libsyn. And in 2017, they changed the way they kept their statistics. So anything that was downloaded before 2017 is on a different screen, and this one's since 2017. But even my first podcast, as you can see here... Is still being downloaded to this day, one or two a month. Not a lot. People discover your podcast and they go back and they download your entire library, and that's what people do. I've had some interesting interviews along the way. This is uh, Tracy Edwards. She screened the movie Maiden at Sundance last year, and I went up and I interviewed her personally in Face, which in face-to-face, which is unusual because most of my interviews are done over the phone or over Skype as a general rule. But I sat down with her up at Park City and interviewed her for uh, the movie Maiden. And Tracy Edwards was the first woman to to organize an all-women crew to participate in the -the round-the-world Whitbread race. And this is, of course, she was a lot younger when she did it in 1989. But this is uh, when she got the crew back together for the making of this documentary. Also, I interviewed Skip Strong. Skip Strong was the captain of a 688-foot oil tanker. And he was sailing, well, he was moving a cargo along the coast of Florida when, it, when a big storm came up. And there was a mayday call by a barge that was hauling, a, um, I think, one of the uh, booster engines for the space shuttle. And it was bringing it around, and the mayday call went out, and he was the closest boat to to render assistance. Now, in maritime law, you are required to uh, render assistance to save lives, but you are not required to render assistance to save property. But he took it upon himself to render assistance to try to save this barge. And the fuel cell on this barge was worth $50 million, which led, in maritime law, to the largest maritime award in history at that time i'm not sure if it's been passed since then but he was a very interesting interview i did with him and then this guy rory mcdougall rory mcdougall sailed this tiny catamaran around the world for the most part alone and and it literally took me seven hours to get his full story out so it was actually seven episodes and it's actually i get emails from people all the time saying they really enjoyed the series of podcasts that I did with Rory McDougall. So I built my boat behind my house in the Avenues. It took me five years to build my boat. And then I launched it in Bellingham in 1991, and then in 97, I brought it back to the Avenues to do some more work on it, and then I shipped it from the Avenues to Hampton, Virginia, where I sailed it across the Atlantic. And yesterday my daughter, Michelle, asked me, said, Dad, why did you ever want to become a sailor? And I attribute it to this National Geographic article uh, in October of 1968. The Dove. The Dove, exactly. The Dove. You remember it, I remember it. It it spoke to me. I was fourteen years old at the time. And I I read this guy's story and I said, Boy, I want to travel by sail. That was uh that was inspirational to me. And uh and be, over the next well, from 68 to 70, in the next two years, they had three other articles that were feature articles in the National Geographic documenting his sail around the world. Along the way, he got married, and he's still married to the same woman now up in Montana, and he's 70 years old, over 70 years old. He's in his 70s. My daughters, who are here with me tonight, grew up sailing. To them, it was just normal. They <laughs> didn't think it was unusual, but... Um, this is when I brought my my daughter uh, standing next to the boat. I think that's Lisa. I can never tell you two guys apart. But uh, That was just before I shipped the boat across the country to go sail across the Atlantic. And when I launched the boat, the other one is Michelle, learning to row a dinghy in in uh, British Columbia on the island of Nelson Island in Ballet Bay. So for them, they just grew up sailing. And the last time I had them both together on the boat was about 11 years ago, which is sad, sad. (laughs) And uh, they had, uh, it was (laughs) a full boat. (laughs) My boat is comfortable with two people. It's crowded with three people. But that particular time, we had two, four, six people on the boat. And so they both brought their husbands with them, and we went sailing. Uh, This picture was taken in Cappadocia, Turkey, in one of the underground cities in Cappadocia, Turkey, so they grew up, for me, sailing was always an, a, a, a way to travel. It wasn't about the sailing, it was about the traveling. And so that was what always appealed to me about sailing. Over the years, I've had some pretty influential guests. <laughs> and Steve Bamberger and his college friend Jim Maddox joined me for the first time. They were the first guests on my boat. Jeff Shields, who's here tonight, and Rick Canute. Join me, sailing on the boat. J- you haven't come out again. I guess I yeah, just scared yeah. you off that first time.) I'm sorry, <laughs> Bill and Mary Shorter joined me, and if you look at this picture, they actually used that picture, I think, as their uh, Christmas card one year. Andy and Lisa Buffmeyer, who are here tonight. Andy actually joined me twice, the first time with his son, and then the second time with his wife. I told him not to bring his wife. but Because, you, you know, on my boat, you've got to be willing to pee in a bucket. And uh, so, you know... You... Is that, that is actually on uh, Ithaca, on the island of Ithaca, the town of in Ithaca. And you can see our boat is actually literally tied up in front of this restaurant. So we had to actually climb over people... To get off the boat when we were tied up here. And and the people, the, the people who were eating dining at the restaurant when we pulled in helped us tie up. So it was kinda of... Then Nick and Yvonne Travis, they're here with us tonight. Mark Corbin and Mike Allgood in improper poses. <laughs> Uh, Dave Mortensen and Rosemary Britner, Dave used to be a member of the club, but he's not. And Dave is the only, well, I shouldn't say the only, the, but the, the one person that I remember that really hurt himself on the boat. He, I told him we were going, we're getting off the boat and taking a ferry down to Hedra. And I told him, shut the hatch, shut the center hatch. And he, he unloosed the thing and brought it down and it smashed his finger. And he was in so much pain for the rest of the trip. So he, he had to come back and actually get surgery for it. And then this guy, Norman Jewison, and his friend Lynn St. David, who's now his wife, they joined me. Um, I'd met Norman Jewison skiing up at Deer Valley, and I told Norman, I said, Hey, Norman, I sail over in the Mediterranean. Would you like to come sailing with me sometime? And he said, Oh, yeah, I'd love to. Just let me know. And so I called him up one year, and I said, Norman, I'm sailing in Sicily and this, this is my route this summer, because I let people know my route, and I say, when would you like to join me, if you would like to join me? I said, yeah, let me join you in Sicily in, in Porta Rosa. Well, it just turned out that summer he was going to the Terramina Film Festival, uh, which is the oldest film festival in Europe, uh, to receive the Diamond Award for his movie, Jesus Christ Superstar. I don't know if you ever saw that. He has more stories to tell than I can imagine. I actually have some recordings of him talking to that I don't think he knows about but uh, really interesting stories he had to tell good stories I mean fun stories so Norman and Lynn joined me in Porta Rosa on the northern coast of Sicily and the first night we sailed out to uh, the island of Volcano we were heading out to the Aeolian Islands in Vulcano, uh, north of Sicily and as you talked about Homer, Homer talks about the islands, the Aeolian Islands, these are the windy islands right? Well, the first night, we anchored off Volcano, and it was dead calm when we dropped our anchor. And the pilot told me that this was not a good place to anchor if there was unsettled weather. And I said, well, it's not. It's settled weather. We don't need to worry about it. But that night, the wind came up. We were on a lee shore. And I ended up spending the entire night in the cockpit making sure our anchor didn't drag while the boat next to us dragged ashore and was on the shore that night. It was a steel boat so no damage. They just hired another boat to come drag them off the next morning. But we continued to have terrible weather the entire time that they were with me. It's the worst, time ever. worst weather I've ever had with guests on my boat was the Aeolian Islands. I don't know if I ever want to go back there again. <laughs> so when I was asked to give this talk, I started laying out different routes that I'd sailed in the Mediterranean since I took the boat over there. And I I got to this point and I gave up because it was just turning into a spider's nest. And one of my favorite trips up into the Sea of Marmara is not, not showing on here. But I decided there's no way I can talk about sailing in the Mediterranean. So I had to narrow it down to one specific summer. And the summer I'm going to talk about is a summer in the lower corner, or the lower part, this white outline. And that was the summer of 2013. And in the summer of 2013, I had uh, five different crews. The first crew, which is the work crew, was Roger Schultz and Kevin Iyer. And none of you know them, but, but these are people I could abuse, and I did. Uh, and then I had a week where I sailed by myself. I always try to give myself about a week to sail solo to keep my skills up to date. And then Bill and Mary Shorter and Nick and Yvonne Travis, and then my wife and Brandon joined me on the last crew. So this is the route we took that summer. We started out in Bodrum, and we worked our way around this big circular route and ended up back in Bodrum at the end of the summer. So the first crew, like I said, is the work crew. These guys have to work their butts off, and I always reward them with additional time on the boat, but it's, you know, everybody thinks sailing is cocktails and sunsets, and it's not. It is not cocktails and sunsets. It's a lot of work. So this is a partial list of what we had to do to get the boat in the water. We had to take the full cover off the boat and store it. We had to clean the boat. We had to remove the bowsprit and boomkin. And I built my original bowsprit and boomkin here in Salt Lake, but over the years, it had I started getting some dry rot in the bowsprit and I could have probably ignored it, but to me, that's a critical structural point on the boat. The bowsprit is what the forestay attaches to, and the boomkin is what the backstay attaches to. The backstays and the forestays and the shrouds are what holds up the mast. If any one cable gives way, then you could lose the mast, which could be dangerous and expensive. So I decided this year I was going to replace the bowsprit and boomkin, then we had to replace the electric windlass. It had died over the years. The electric windlass is what pulls up the anchor. And when I first launched the boat, I had a hand windlass. And, it, and I had the hand windlass when Norman Jewison was with me in LaPar and, and pulling up an anchor from 100 feet deep, six inches at a time, doing that is just too much work. So we, I put an electric windlass on the boat years later, and that was the smartest thing I ever did. So we have to replace the zinc. Zincs are... Um, sacrificial anodes underneath the boat. We had to replace the saltwater pump impeller, which keeps the engine cool. We had to sand and paint the bottom. And, and then we had to do the usual, install the self-steering vane, launch the boat, hank on the sails, and probably another hundred items that aren't listed here. So the first crew is the work crew. So we took the bowsprit and can off. And we took it next door, and this was in Bodrum, and in the boatyard in Bodrum. And next door to the boatyard was this shipwright named Ali. I never knew his last name because he couldn't really speak English and I couldn't speak Turkish. But I took the uh, bowsprit and boom cone over to Ali and I said, you need to uh, build me new ones. And he said, okay. And uh, so he, he started building me new bowsprits and boom I said, how long is it going to take? And he said, oh, five or six days. And I said, okay, that's fine. So we went back to the boat and did all the work we could do, and and then we still had a few days that we were going to sit around. And I don't sit around in a boatyard. That doesn't sound like a good time to me. So we decided to rent a car and do a Greek temple tour of the area we were at. And all the best Greek ruins are in Turkey, and that's got to piss off the Greeks like crazy. But they are in Turkey, not in Greece. You have a few in Greece, but the best Greek ruins are in Turkey. And so this was the road trip we took. We started out in Bodrum. We went to Eremos, which nobody's ever heard of. Then we went to Didim, uh at the Temple of Apollo, Miletus, uh, Perini, uh, Ephesus, and then back to the boat. That was a couple days. Actually, about three days, I think it was. The first Greek ruin we hit was Eremos, which is just north, and nobody ever visits this ruin. You have this ruin to yourself if you want to go find this. And uh, you, you can see a very well-preserved columns of this temple. It's not a very big ruin. The first time I went there, there was nobody guarding it. No, nobody there. We just walked in and walked around these ruins. Through, and, uh, and to actually find it, you have to know where you're going. It's a dirt road going up to get to these ruins. But it's by a main road that goes from Bodrum over to Cushatasi. Along the way, I couldn't help but taking this picture. We went by this restaurant, and these puppets were sitting out in front of the restaurants. And I just had to stop and take a picture of this. And and my wife and I drove by there a few years later, and they were still sitting there. They hadn't left. They had aged a little bit, but they were still there. And I think we actually ate at that restaurant, and it was okay. But you know, that's what grabbed me was these uh, these puppets. Then we went down to Didym Temple of Apollo. A lot of people visit this, so you know you don't have this one to yourself. And then we went up to the Meander River Valley. And the word meander comes from the river down through Turkey, the Meander River. And we visited uh, my favorite ruin, which is Miletus and then Perini. And back in the day, this is 600 BCE, uh, these were port towns. So since 600 BCE, this is silted in Pretty much all the way through here. And uh, I think this was actually my first time visiting Miletus, but since then it's become my favorite ruin in Turkey. This is Miletus. It's got a huge freestanding amphitheater. It, it's, it covers hundreds of acres. Um, the year we were there, it was very wet. When I went back with my wife, it was all dry. So I remember this picture here, this of uh, the agora. And that column in the water. You have baths. You can wander around this. The day we were there, it was the three of us and three other people. That was it. All by ourselves, wandering around. This cow herder came up to us while we were walking around there. And he said, follow me, follow me, follow me. We didn't understand what he said, but we followed him. And he took us out to this area out here. And you can see this rock. And he said, that's the lion. That's one of the two lions. It was the entrance to the harbor at the time. He said the other lion is in the British Museum, and we would never have found this without him showing us where it was. Because, like I say, this is a huge area that it covered. I want to tell a story about Miletus. It's the first in the first chapter of Herodotus. You will talk about he talks about the uh, king of Miletus, and I don't remember the whole story, but. But what I do remember is a story by Nassim Taleb in one of his books, and I think the book was called Anti-Fragile, where he talked about uh, Thales of Miletus, who had friends that were, he was a philosopher, a mathematician and philosopher, and his friends were always teasing him about, you know, you, you don't ever make any money, you can't do anything. And Thales said, okay, I tell you what, I'm going to make some money and you guys leave me alone. He said, I said, okay, sure, talk the talk. So the, that year, he went out to all the olive presses in the area. And I've been through here, and I bought olive oil from this area, so they're still producing olive oil, and it's wonderful olive oil. So he went out to the olive presses in the area surrounding Miletus, and he said, went to every one of the owners and said, listen, I'm going to give you some money, and for this money, you have to give me the opportunity to hire you at your rates to use your presses. If I want to do that, I will pay you whatever you want, what your regular rate is, we establish that right now, to use your presses. And if I don't exercise that right, then you can just conduct business as usual. Well, the olive harvest came in uh, spectacular that year. He exercised the first recorded option in history, and uh, all the people that had olives had to go through him to use the olive presses and pay whatever he asked for to use the olive presses. So Nassim Taleb, in his book, tells, says that's the first recorded option in history. So he went back to being a philosopher, and they left him alone. <laughs> then we go across the Meander River Valley. Oh, I want to back up here. So after we'd spent the day traveling through Miletus or wandering around Meletus, we spent a whole afternoon wandering through Meletus. we go and find a hotel near near the Meander River Valley. And it's just... The Three of us in this hotel, and then a whole bunch of British bird watchers that had hired, that had, that had um, rented this hotel and we go to dinner and we 're sitting at our table they 're all sitting at a big table, and you have not lived until you 've listened to drunk British people imitating bird calls at dinner <laughs> so then we head over to perini, which is a another Beautiful Greek ruin. This is a, you know, these five columns are the, the picture, but there's lots of other things to see in there, and you've got all these pieces of the columns that are falling down, and it overlooks the Meander River Valley, and it's it's just gorgeous. And then we head up to uh, Selček, which is next to Ephesus. And I just threw this in because this is an earthquake map of Turkey. And the darker the red, the more earthquakes they have, and we happen to be right over here near Ephesus. And that night we stayed there, um, we had an earthquake. So I think that's the first, the second earthquake I've actually woken up to from sleeping. So I just thought, threw that in here. So we head back. Kevin goes to Ephesus. I've been to Ephesus before. All the damn cruise ships drop off 30,000 people a day to wander through Ephesus. And Perini and Miletus are empty. And that's great. I love that. So uh, we went back, our bowsprit was built. Our bumpkin was built. We launched the boat, and I sailed down, and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of running out of time. I don't know how long I have. We run down to Bosburn, and that's where Roger and Kevin get off the boat, and I sail over to me. I clear out of Turkey in Bosburn. Bosburn, by the way, I love to visit because in Bosburn, that's where they build these beautiful gullets, these beautiful wooden boats that you'll see sailing up and down the coast of um, Turkey. That's one of the locations. They build a lot of them there. And me being a boat builder, I love to uh, to go look at other boat builders' work. Oops, wrong way. Anybody recognize this cliff on the left? That's where the background for the Guns of Navarone was filmed. The Older people in this audience know what that is. Nobody else does. Uh, when I got to Simian cleared in, the weather forecast was for very windy weather coming up, and I was sailing by myself. So I decided I need to find a protected anchorage to ride out the bad winds that were coming. I went around the corner to this fully protected harbor, and that's a monastery. I'd been here before. It's a beautiful setting, but if you're by yourself, it's pretty boring. I would have been stuck on the boat for a couple days, and I decided after the first night to head on up to Niseros, which I'd never been to before. It's got a fully protected harbor. And I could tie up to the quay and get off the boat. And I had Wi-Fi at the near restaurant, and I could rent scooters. And so I rented a scooter and rode around the island. And this picture on the right is uh, it was one of the cor- the, the main core of the island. The cores are the towns up in the center at the top of the islands. You know the Greeks built their main towns way up on the hills so they could see the invaders from a distance and escape before they climbed up the hill to get to the town. Uh, They also have a big caldera in Niseros, and this is a steam vent with sulfur around it. And the caldera on the right, I show, just for scale, how big this is. I had this whole caldera to myself until a bus came and unloaded a bunch of tourists. The storm came, and then I had an absolutely spectacular sail from Nisros all the way down to an island called El Nia. And this is a desert island. There's nobody that lives on this island, but it's got a, a wonderful bay, fully protected bay for anchoring. So if you're by yourself, you're always looking for easy ways to anchor your boat. But the pilot pointed out that on the island of Olimia, it had, it had been a, uh, an area that the Italian soldiers had barracked during World War II. And on the walls of the barracks were graffiti that the Italian soldiers had painted on the walls. And I thought, well, this is interesting. This, and, and, and it's deteriorating fairly rapidly. So I went and found these barracks and took pictures of the graffiti on the wall. And I thought, well, this is really interesting. This is a piece of history that, uh, that is just sitting there open and it's going to be destroyed in no time at all. Took a bunch of pictures. I can imagine what the one on the left is. Uh, the guy's dreaming of being under a palm tree with his girlfriend, but I don't understand much else. <laughs> From there, it was a very short hop over to the island of Kalki, and I'd never been to Kalki before. And Kalki is where I would go if I wanted a very quiet vacation Uh, it's the island in the distance is roads Kalki does not allow any motorized vehicles on the island so it's very quiet very calm unfortunately the harbor is dangerous it's it pointed out in the pilot that uh, you only anchor in Kalki in, in settled weather my boat is there on the left I backed up and tied up I tied up there so I could make a quick escape by myself if I had to, and I had to exercise that. And this is just a couple more pictures of Kalki. There's my boat there tied up at the, at the bay, at the, at the end of the wharf. And that night, the winds came up. I had to kick off and sail over back to Alimia. And these are the barracks that I talked about, where the, where the Italian soldiers were billeted over here in the barracks. And then I headed down to Karpathos where Bill and Mary Shorter joined me. We rented a car and we drove around the island and we went up to this town called Olympos in Karpathos. And Olympos is known for its traditional uh, costume of the people that live there and the handicrafts of the people that sell. And so we're walking up the, the town and there's people that, that, you know, in these this nice traditional costumes and they're trying to sell you things that, And they are using their pidgin English to try to sell you something. So I was talking to this woman, and her phone rings, and she picks it up, and she speaks in perfect English. Oh, hi, Marge, how are you doing? What's going on? It turns out that most of these people that live in Olympus uh, go back and forth to Baltimore. (laughs) They go back and forth to Baltimore. They have families owned own restaurants in Baltimore, and they go back and work in the restaurants and then come back to Olympus. So, <laughs> it's still a beautiful town. It's way up on the top of the hill, and it's windswept, as you can see. And once you get down to Carpathos, you're really you, well, once I left Nisarosa, you're really off the main track of most sailors. Very few sailors get down in this area. My next island is Kassos, And you have to, we had to backtrack and get the backstory on why I was going to Casos to begin with. I went back to school when I was in my 50s. I was bored. I lead a boring life. And um, I wanted to get a degree in something other than business because I've been working in business my entire life. So I went back to get a degree in geography. And you know, the nice thing about the University Geography Department is you can pretty much pick what you're going to write your thesis on. And so I did. Well, when I sailed into this island of Ionusis, now here we are down here. This is where Cassus is, right down there. You see that? Okay. And Olympu- Ionusis is up here, just off the, the west or east coast of uh, the island of Chios. Well, this is an island of shipowners. Some of the, probably the most wealthy shipowners come from the island of Ionusis. This tiny little island of not more than probably 4,000 people has created the wealthiest ship owners in the world. And around the waterfront, you can see this this wall over here. And what is that? That's the profile of a ship right there. So they celebrate their ship heritage. And along the waterfront, you'll see these statues of past ship owners, Limnos, 1884 to 1956, Here's another Limnos, and they have a maritime museum there, and they also have a maritime college on this island, a tiny little island. They also have a memorial for sailors that have been lost at sea. And I was looking at this wall, and in World War II, there was one family that lost six sons in World War II. But I really enjoyed the heritage, and I thought, wow, that's interesting, (laughs) that all these Wealthy ship owners come from this one tiny island. Well, I had a a client of mine that was from Plain City, Utah, and he told me the story of the trucking companies that come from Plain City, Utah. And little do we know in Utah, the largest trucking company in America comes from Plain City, Utah, and it's the combination of the Knight and the Swift Transportation families. Jerry Moyes started Swift Transportation. Kevin, Knight worked for him. Kevin, Keith, and Randy and I worked for them and started Night Transportation and they started Night Transportation and then they merged Night with Swift and they are the largest U.S. trucking company and then you also have CR England and Pride Transport that comes from Plain City, Utah and I thought well this is interesting, there's concentrations of economic power in these little locations. Well, that was what I decided to do my thesis on, was the concentration of the Greek shipping industries in these little communities. And if you start going down this path, you run across this woman, Galena Harlafsis. And I met with her. She's published a lot of information on the Greek shipping families. And I met with her, and she said, Franz, you really need to talk to um, Elias Kulakundis. I'll introduce you to him. He's from the island of Kassos. And so I took the time and met with Elias Kulakundis at the Metropolitan Club in New York, had lunch with him. They're a reciprocal club of ours. And he had written this book, Feasts of Memory, which talks about the first time he went back as a Greek-American to visit his home island in Kassos when he was in his 20s. And this is just a fascinating read. It tells you a lot about the Greek culture. And so that was why I was heading down to Kassos. And here we are approaching the the harbor of Kassos. And there's Bill and Mary looking out at my boat, good sight. And, uh, and then this is me looking back at where they were sitting. They were sitting right up here in this little cafe there. But it, it was not, to me, it was a really big letdown. Let really, they really didn't celebrate their culture, at least not on the waterfront. I was never able to get up to the Cora. The main town is probably about five miles away, and I never had the time to walk up to it but it was a bit of a disappointment. So we continue on. We sail on over to Crete, and we rent a car, and we drive around the island of Crete, and we visit the main Minoan Museum on Heraclea, like every tourist does that visits Crete, and then we drive up to this beautiful, beautiful mountain valley, way up in the hills, and along the way they take this picture, and... uh, uh, they had these windmills on this, this this valley floor that brought up water to irrigate the fields. Most of those windmills have been replaced with electric pumps, but it's still nice to see a few of them out there. And then the next crew, <laughs> the dreaded leg, <laughs> the dreaded leg. All right, when you're sailing in the Adri- the Aegean, not the Adriatic, the Aegean, the Aegean is dominated by a wind pattern called the Maltimi winds. And the Maltimi winds are caused by global, global weather patterns. And you have the Azores high, which are circulating in a clockwise direction, and the Pakistani low, which are counterclockwise, and they meet right in the Aegean. And that's what causes the Maltimis. And it moves from left to right, and the wind speed varies up and down. But in the summer, the winds are always from the north. Now, May, you might get some southerlies, but June, July, August, the winds are from the north. And that's why I'd never been down to Crete before, because I didn't want to try to go against the wind. I mean, if you've never sailed before, going against the wind is fun for about an hour. <laughs> but try 24 hours of doing this, and it's not much fun, because it's, you're, you're heeled over the waves are bashing against you. The, the, the water's spraying over you, getting you wet all night long. And Nick and Yvonne join me for baptism on this leg. And this this is this was a... Yeah, the, the winds were not that bad. The waves were not that bad. But 24 hours of doing this was bad. And, and you, guys got, you guys got the worst leg of the trip getting up here. So we headed up, and uh, we got to the island of Analfi. And Analfi is another one of those islands I would be glad to visit again. It was a very, very quiet island, about 10 miles east of uh, Thira, Santorini. And we rented some scooters and spent a couple days riding around this island. Nick and Yvonne hiked up to this this monastery, not monastery, this chapel right here at the top of this big rock. When you're sailing into this island... All you see is this big rock, and then right at the top of the rock is this chapel, way up at the top. And I didn't have the energy to hike up there, but Nick and Yvonne did. In fact, they tried it twice. The first time they missed the route, and the second time they were successful. So we spent a couple days there, and it was very quiet. My boat is way down here. That's my boat right there, that little black spot right there. We're up in the core looking down. And I had found a big uh, one or 2,000 concrete block at the bottom of the seabed with a line to tie onto, so I wasn't really worried about my boat dragging. We sailed over to Asta Pillea, and uh, the boat's right there in this tiny little harbor. These windmills are right at the ridge here, right there on the ridge. We spent a couple days. I think we rented a car and drove around this island as well. And then we went back to Santorini. I dropped Nick and Yvonne off and picked up my wife and Brandon who are here tonight for the final leg of the trip. Now the, the the big work on the boat is the put-in crew and the take-out crew, so I was glad to have Brandon there for the take-out crew. But this is uh, Santorini looking down into the picture-perfect caldera, and this is the classic picture of every postcard you get out of, of Greece is looking down into this caldera. And imagine this caldera, and then Jeff, you sailed through this caldera with me as well. That's right. When you joined me, you sailed through this as well. But imagine this whole area just blowing up in the blink of an eye. And that destroyed the Minoan culture. And this is the caldera that's left over as a result. So this this picture on the left is looking down into the caldera. And the picture on the right is us sailing through the caldera. and, And this is where we took that other picture, way over there. So... You can imagine how, how huge this caldera is in Santorini. We sailed from there uh, up to Eos and then over to Amagoros. We visited this, um, this monastery on the side of the hill. This is another classic monastery. It's built right into the cliff, and you have to hike up to get to it. And uh, once you get to it, they'll give you some water and an aperitif. And this is how they get the water up with these mules right there to the left. I wanted to leave a little time for talking, but the final leg with the family was uh, Thera, Eos, Amagoros, Levithia, uh, Leros, Calminos, Kosh, and Bodrum where we put up the boat. That's the leg. And I'm open to questions. <laughs> yes, Lisa. So the question was, how many of the islands have I been to in the Mediterranean I have no idea. I tried to start counting and I gave up. But it'd be easier to list the ones I haven't been to than the ones I have been to. All right. So the question was, what type of boat is it? Is it a sloop, catch, cutter? It's a cutter. It's a cutter. It's got a stay and a and a uh j- So the question was, have I read Maiden Voyage, the story about Tanya Aby? And I responded that I'm pretty sure that I interviewed her. And I went back through my podcast and I didn't see that I actually had interviewed her. So I reached out to her and I will be having her on a future podcast. Steve, you talk about Love pilot. Is that a book or are you hiring Harbor Pilots? So the question was, what is the pilot I keep referring to? No, the, A pilot is a, it's like a travel guide that you buy specifically for, for, for the areas, and everywhere you sail in the Mediterranean has different what you call pilots. And these are basically travel guides written by people. and you just generally call them pilots. Jeff. I've talked about that many times, yes. Yeah. When Jeff was with me, it's the only time I've actually... Yeah, it's the only... We were on... We were... Forget the name of the island we were on, but... Uh, what was it? was the city. Yeah, it was just east of, of uh, Mykonos. And, uh, you know, you got off the boat. I couldn't get off the boat. There's a big harbor with a lot of traffic in and out of the harbor, and... And I let you and, and Rick off the boat to go explore the city, but I didn't feel comfortable leaving the boat, so I stayed tied up to the seawall. And uh, you got back on the boat, and we started heading out to go over to uh, Mykonos, which is about 15, 20 miles away. And as we were heading out the island, as a strong wind is starting to build, and a customs boat comes up to us and motions for us to tie up next to him. And so we tie up next to him. He says, oh, give me your passports and your papers. And I said, okay. Oh. Passports and papers. We're sitting there, and he goes back and do it. And we're drifting in this the, this big harbor, and we're tied up to this big steel boat, and we're sort of drifting. And he get, he comes back and says, "Okay, come over and come come tie up to the sidewall and come into our office." And I said, "Listen, is there something wrong? Because if I tie up to your wall, my boat is in danger. Is there something wrong with our papers?" He didn't say anything. He just went back, got my papers and passports, and gave me "see you later." I think he was looking for a bribe, and we just don't know how to give bribes. Yeah. Comments from Buff Myers and Travises. So the question was: comments from the Buff Myers and the Travises, the people that had sailed with me that were in the audience. <laughs> yeah. What was your, what was your memories of the trip? <laughs> Well, it was was an unbelievable experience. I had never sailed before. Yeah, you got baptism by a miserable night. Yeah. Overnight, and it was—I mean—it was an incredible experience. It was scary as hell, (laughs) frankly. Because you went to sleep. He said, "The only thing you have to worry about is that one rock." (laughs) The thing I remember is when they when. sun started to come in, and there were, um, there was life. there were birds, and you came up and said these birds never touch land, there are birds that just live, you know, they live out in the water. And just, I realized, this was a world that I never experienced before. It was, it was just, it was Lisa? Uh, just fabulous memories. Every little island that we visited was just so, um, uh, well, like Nick was saying, it's so a totally new experience, something I've never done before. And we would pull up just like in a picture and, and just dock right by a restaurant. And We'd go find a new restaurant for have breakfast. Um, it was a fantastic experience. I, I have wonderful memories. very grateful. Um, I, I've been to Greece six times with me. And this is the best way to do it. Yeah. Here's the pattern. Yeah. you got to understand the pattern. get up in the morning, old coffee. Get ready to go, pull up the anchor, and you sail or motor along for three to four hours. You pull into another little Greek harbor, you tie up, you walk over, and use the facilities. Mm -hmm. That's right. Next restaurant. And you have dinner there, you get on Wi Fi, and then spend the night. You get up the next morning, you have a cup of coffee at the (laughs) Greek restaurant, sort of cooking boat together, you go on the next three to four hours later. It's delightful. <laughs> do you have reservations anywhere? How do I <laughs> No, I mean when you're switching, changing harbors, you know. No, no. In, in Greece, no. And probably in the uh, in in the Adriatic, you might want to do that ahead of time. But this summer I sailed the entire Adriatic and went into the most crowded anchorages in in Italy, in Venice, and I didn't have any reservations, so now I usually don't make reservations. Yeah. Very serendipitous. And one more thing. You inspired our youngest son, who went with you before I Right, yeah, yeah. And he has now become quite the sailor. He, he owns a sailboat with some buddies, and he goes out and fishes all the time in the San Francisco Bay, and mm-hmm. and he's taken me out several times, So yeah. Well, that's one of my goals. That's right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah you went with me twice, Andy. That was great. I didn't think you know i didn't think yeah i usually caution people to bring their wives i say listen if you don't like camping don't bring your wife this is not this is not luxury camping yeah it's a really yeah literally camping on a boat and being willing to pee in a bucket at night i mean i have a head on the boat but the people, the forward compartment where you sleep is covering up the toilet so during the night if you need to get up to go pee you got to go pee in a bucket and I'm sleeping right next to you. So, I mean, and it's a little awkward for some people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know you one of the gym rats. How do I sign up for your Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I, I like to invite people out to go sit with me. I enjoy sharing an experience. Usually it's a. I'm Gwen, then. <laughs> yeah, okay. One more question. Yeah, Gwen. Well, what's the scariest situation you've ever been in most... Well, that that's easy for me to remember. No, the customs was minor. That's just bureaucrats. But when we sailed across the Atlantic, we came, we were about three days away from the Azores. We'd left the uh, east coast of America, and this was a miserable crossing. It was literally a miserable crossing. We had of the 22 days to get to the Azores, 18 days was in stormy weather, and uh, we were about three days out of the Azores and. And that was with Bruce Frazier and uh, Stan Iazzi were my crew members. And we saw this big wall of black coming towards us, just just the most ominous thing you can see. And I said, okay, let's, uh, let's reef down and heave to with your storm, storm weather tactics and just get ready for it because we know it's going to be bad. And, uh, and it hit us and literally laid us on our side so far over that water was coming up and going into the cockpit. And we released the sails. Slowly the boat came up, and I told Stan to go forward and, and bring down the jib. Even though it was reefed, it was still way too much sail for the conditions. And, and, and interestingly enough, the waves actually flattened out. The winds were so strong, they flattened the waves. But it was... Uh, I would yell as loud as I could from the cockpit, and Stan couldn't hear me from the front of the boat. So we took down the sails and just went down below and said, well, we hope it goes away. And it lasted about a half an hour, and that was, that was it. But it was still pretty scary at the time. Yeah. After that, we put up the sails and continued on. So, yeah. Thanks. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go salient.